I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. You're listening to Investigates, the podcast that lifts the veil on some of the country's biggest crimes and mysteries. I'm your host for today, Stephen Downey. Boxing Day 2004. It's a day that many Australians remember, not because of how bloated they were feeling or who Australia played in the Boxing Day cricket test at the MCG, but because of the Boxing Day tsunami that struck 14 countries and killed more than 230,000 people. Good evening. More than 11,000 people are now thought to have been killed in southern Asia after an undersea earthquake sent enormous waves rolling across the Indian Ocean. So what happened when the wave hit? What was the aftermath like? And how did it change the way Australians viewed the world? 15 years on, the Indian Ocean tsunami, as it is now known, is still one of the deadliest tsunamis in history. And journalist John Burford joins me now to discuss it. How's it going, John? I'm good, Stephen. Always good to be here. Today we're talking about the Indian Ocean tsunami. 15 years this year, isn't Mm. it, John? A lot of Australians... They were waking up and eating their leftovers, I suppose, from, from Christmas Day lunch. And they were getting prepared to, to, uh, to watch the Boxing Day test. And suddenly they turn on the news and, and they hear a devastating tsunami is hit. It, it was unbelievable. I mean, the thing is, after, the, after Christmas Day, in media terms, it's always known as that quiet zone. Between Christmas and New Year, there's a Boxing Day uh, test. And really, there's nothing much else that, that happens. Well, that was the thing. Australians woke up the next morning and suddenly find there was this horrific event just to our north with uh, that involved all our closest neighbours like Indonesia and uh, Thailand and Singapore and, and that, that whole area of Southeast Asia. But then when we began hearing the stories through about how many Australians were involved, it really took on a completely different perspective. And then when we began hearing stories about Australians being killed, I think it really hit home. The tsunami hit 14 countries, including Thailand and Sri Lanka. However, Indonesia was the country that was the most damaged by the large wave. Hundreds of Australians were thought to be holidaying in these countries. And as news trickled in of the death toll, it became more and more apparent that this was a global emergency. Of all the countries that were hit, Indonesia, you're right, was the hardest hit. However, the most number of Australians that died were actually in Thailand. Mm. 23 Australians died in Thailand and three died in Sri Lanka. Uh, But across the 14 countries that the tsunami literally hit, an estimated 230,000 people were killed. There, some estimates are higher than that, but almost almost a quarter of a million. But um, yeah, uh, Indonesia, you know, our, our very close neighbour, was literally just devastated. But it was in Thailand, particularly in um, some of the beach resorts like Phuket, full of holiday makers, people enjoying the, their holidays, um, and three in Sri Lanka, where um, the most Aussies um, died and were injured. John, let's talk about how it unfolded. Sure, sure. 
Sunday, 26 of December 2004, at two minutes to one, 58 minutes past midnight, a 9.1 magnitude earthquake struck off the west coast of Sumatra. It was the third largest ever recorded earthquake, and it lasted, get for this, between eight to 10 minutes. Not seconds, minutes. So you can imagine what that was doing underneath the ocean. Um, pretty pretty devastating. It also was 30 kilometres below sea level. So if you've got that kind of a, an eruption going on, uh, it, it's causing all kinds of, of mayhem. However, because it was so low and because it was so big, it took a while for the impact. In some places, they said that the, uh, the wave took um, about 15, 20 minutes to, um, to hit the coastlines. In other, the impact was literally between seven and eight hours to reach some of the coastlines of that Southeast Asia Strip. That's right. So that's why when we, we hear about these stories, of, of uh, especially in Thailand, where they're you know, sitting around in the resorts and it's early morning and they're having a, maybe a morning swim, that's when we think, you know, we, we hear about those reports of the, the wave just coming in and, and, and wiping, wiping the, uh, the resorts out. Exactly. Well, and so in the, ca- the case of some of the places, and, and remember, it, it could have taken up to seven hours to reach some of those coastlines. Back here in Australia, Eastern Standard Time, we, we're three to four hours, depending on daylight savings, we're three to four hours ahead of that. So it wasn't necessarily that we woke up to, to mm. a lot of this news. It was happening in the morning of the news, uh, in the morning as, as we were all enjoying Boxing Day. But for a lot of the people, actually, in the case of Thailand, we'll focus on that because that's where the most Aussies um, perished, was that um, there are stories of people literally going down for breakfast and looking out and seeing the coastline and seeing waves doing strange things and suddenly seeing the water as one person I remember describing it looked like uh, they said looked like somebody had grabbed the water and pulled it away from the beach they said that was the only way they could describe it while researching this story John spoke to Melbourne survivor Joe Giardina about what he saw here's what Joe had to say about what it was like when the wave came in there was not a hint of what was about to unfold and when eventually the, the wave did come in it's not the same. Not not you know, don't picture this huge you know, twenty foot or twenty or ten meter wave. The water it was just you know, you get those extraordinary waves sometimes that just come along and just come a little bit further up the beach. Well this was one of those but it kept coming. So we were standing opposite the beach, we're having breakfast at, uh, at, at the front of the, at the sea view and all of a sudden you see the, the water comes up and it's probably about, you know, four inches of, of water that fronted up on the road. And I said to Vanna, goodness, look at this wave, it's uh, up onto the road. But as soon as it hit a car and it hit a four-wheel drive, so it started to push it forward. That gave you an idea of the uh, of, of the you know, of the push that the water had. Um, so that was that was the beginning of it. Um, but you know, just about four inches of water coming up onto the road. But the thing was, it kept coming. With Joe, tell us a bit more about him because he obviously he was over there with his family. He was, he was an, an incredible man, and one of the uh, one of the most courageous men. Um, I think I've spoken to in quite a long time. He was over there with his um, his family, with his wife, uh, Ivana, and their 16-year-old son, Paul. They have an, another daughter, um, but she just started a job, and so she remained back in Melbourne. So the family went over to Phuket, Joe, Ivana, and Paul. Paul had Down syndrome. He was 16, um, and they were having this wonderful family holiday, enjoying the sun, and they went down for breakfast, and they were uh, in Phuket, in this uh, resort called the Seaview Hotel, which is right on Patong Beach. 
and they're sitting there having breakfast and they're on the balcony and and Joe tells that just of just looking out and thinking, isn't this beautiful? The sun's shining and they're at Phuket and there's a beautiful beach and something strange was happening in the water. When we realised they were going to come up to the hotel, I said to Arlene, I said, we better, better um, get out here um, back into the hotel because we, we're going to get wet. And obviously the concern was also, you know, Paul's up from Down syndrome, wasn't as mobile as that. He, you know, he may have uh, been, so yeah. Yeah, I said, Paul, come on, let's go inside, Paul. And I you know, grabbed him by the arms, they started running. Uh, in t- towards the back of the hotel and look, yeah, the whole time looking around and just the, the wave kept coming. But it, as, uh, the further back I went, the higher the water was. So when it eventually did hit us, it actually hit us at waist height. As they're beginning to do that, his wife, Ivana, suddenly a car gets pushed between the two of them. Now they're on the balcony of the hotel. So Ivana is separated from her husband and her child. When I realised we were going to get hit, I, I grabbed put him up against the concrete pillar and then put my arms around him thinking, you know, this is as high as the water's going to get. But as soon as uh, it hit us, it picked us both up and threw us over a, a, a dwarf wall, if you like. Um, and then, um, you know, I, I managed to, I had pulled by the uh, collar, uh, but once it threw us over the wall, uh, we got into water there and um, something hit me on the back of the head and I, uh, I, I, I went under and that's when I lost ball. Not long after, by, by sheer, sheer luck, um, he's found floating in the water um, at the very back of the, ho- back of the hotel, in a higher part of the hotel. Because you've got to remember, the, uh, by this stage, the bottom of the hotel's flooded. Everything was just flooded. There was a Sydney couple, Mark and Michelle Tang, who saw this man floating f- face down in the water, and they grabbed him and they pulled him out of the water. They pulled him up to safety into a higher part of the hotel. Now... Uh, Joe was unconscious. He had, had also suffered severe inj- injuries while he was holding on to the um, pillar. He got his hand smashed. Uh, he had broken ribs, ribs and he also had um, a punctured lung. Meanwhile, Ivana was in another part of the uh, hotel um, and out towards the street. She'd, she'd, thankfully, she'd survived. And she's desperately searching for her husband and her son but can't find them anywhere at all. Joe was taken upstairs, and uh, so this terrific Sydney couple, uh, Mark and Michelle Tang, are helping take care of him. Um, and then there was another Aussie there, John Fay, who didn't know the uh, the Giardinas at all, but had met them the night before because he had a big, this is the way Joe tells it, he'd had this big moustache. And uh, Paul, as he walked past, went, God, look at that, look at that. He was, you know, laughing about the moustache and... Uh, John Fay was very good-natured and smiled back at them and gave them a wave and kept going. Well, thank thank goodness they'd made that kind of brief connection because the next day, when the Tangs were taking care of Joe, John Fay was there at the same time. And he, he said, oh, yes, I, I know this man. I know uh, he had a son and he had a wife. And John was outside the hotel also looking for survivors and he saw Ivana walking up the hill because they had just been told there was another tsunami coming in. Remember there were reports of different there was another wave coming in, they had to be careful, and in some cases there were. Well, John actually saw Ivana desperately looking for her husband and her son, and um, John grabbed Ivana and said, come with me, and reunited them. So by this stage, Joe is very badly injured. Ivana's by his side. But they're wondering, where's their son? Where's their son who's gone missing? So these um, family members fly in from Melbourne and they begin the search, the search for the missing son. 
and they go uh, and Thailand had been so badly devastated. There were makeshift morgues in schools, in in um, town halls, in wherever they could, because there were so many bodies. It's just tragic when when you even imagine this. So these uh, two family members are going from morgue to morgue to morgue, and they send, then they go to one, and this is three days later, and they find Paul's body there, and he was he was deceased, um, and he drowned. That must have been really heartbreaking for them. It was absolutely shattering. It was shattering, and these family members then had to go and say to Joe and to Ivana, and Joe, as I said, was badly injured and um, recover and and you know, trying to recover from this pretty awful um, injuries. They uh, had to go and tell them that they. Firstly, had found their son, but they, that he was deceased. Paul was one of 26 Australians who were killed by the tsunami. In total, 230,000 people lost their lives in this freak event. John, I, yeah, I think we should talk to this just briefly if we can. Just to give people an idea of, um, you know, when a, when a tsunami or a big, obviously a massive wave like that comes in, it's, and I've read this before saying, and people, survivors saying that it's like they get tossed around in a washing machine. Yeah. And, and you know, and, and, it's, and, it's, no, and, and it's obviously the water is full of debris, um, sharp objects. Everything. Everything. It's full of glass. Paul was saying it was full of glass, it was full of broken uh, timber, it was full of broken uh, furniture, it was full of, um, he said, anything you can imagine that, that uh, can be pushed, uh, it was in the water. And and when I said, you know, what do you remember, how big were the pieces were? He said, well, put it this way, the fact that a car was being pushed along the road like a matchbox and the fact that he and his wife and son at one point were standing there and the next minute there's a car being shoved between them by the force of this wave gives you an idea of just what was in there. And so you can also imagine the water is so polluted by this stage because it's just got everything in it. It's got everything that you can imagine. So um, to, to say that he had to have his lungs pumped because they were covered in sand um, is just, yeah, you can imagine what else was in that water at the time. What about, like, these the, the medical uh, facilities, you know, the hospital, they must have been stretched to the limits. Oh, it was, it was pretty awful. Um, in, the case of, um, in the case of Indonesia, I'm just out of Thailand for a minute, um, ports, roads, bridges were ruined, and here are some figures. More than 2,100 hospitals were damaged or destroyed. Uh, H's main hospital uh, was really badly damaged. And across Indonesia, 400 health clinics were destroyed. So if you're facing a situation like that, how do you take care of people? What do you do? Thailand was as badly hit as it was. There were resources in other areas um, that uh, they were able to put into action. The Australian government, however, immediately uh, responded and the Australian government's emergency relief effort at that time was the largest peacetime operation Australia had ever launched overseas, the biggest thing we'd done overseas since World War II. And it was just, you've got to get these Australians home because apart from the, the 23 people who, who very sadly died, there were many, many, many hundreds of other Australians who were really badly injured because Thailand is such a popular holiday destination at any time. And in, in terms of uh, a disaster relief operation, it was the biggest disaster relief operation um, since Cyclone Tracy had hit um, back in Christmas 1974. There you go, there's some kind of um, awful connection there. Boxing Day and Christmas Day are normally times of happiness, but uh, th in this occasion, just like Tracy, a very, very sad time. Yeah, and John, tell me, um, tell me about you know, what 
Joe did after the tsunami? Because that's really inspiring. Mm, mm. It's really interesting. You you would you might assume that somebody who's gone through this says, I never need to go back to Phuket again. I never need to go back to Thailand. In the 12 months that followed, um, Joe and Ivana went back twice. They went back uh, about six months afterwards, and then they went back um, roughly about 12 months afterwards on the anniversary. And when I was asking Joe, I said, why did you do that? He said, well, we went back because part of Paul is there. That's where Paul left this world. But they, and this is the incredible part. He said it was really important for them to healing their sorrow. But he said it's also, and he said, and this should never, ever be overlooked. He said, you need to remember what the Thai people went through as well. He said the Thai people were devastated. He would so much devastation throughout what... Um, through their country, because don't forget, Thailand had 8,000 casualties. 8,000 people died, and many, many, many other thousands of people were displaced and injured. So he went back um, to help heal his sorrow. And he said whatever, whatever happened there, as horrible as it was, he didn't want to forget. He didn't want to forget that this is where uh, they were having a wonderful time, a really happy time with their son. But he also wanted to make sure that there was... He had a connection with his son. And it's interesting, that reaction, when he said he had this connection with his son. He th- and he said, I just don't think anyone uh, should be forgotten. With that, that actually sent Joe off on a mission. And it's a really inspiring mission. He was, de- he was determined that none of the Australians who died or who survived the tragedy would ever be forgotten and what an important you know, part of uh, recent history it was. So he began lobbying the, federal, the various federal governments to have a memorial built in Canberra. Now, he started lobbying around 2005, 2006, and he is lobbying and lobbying and sending letters and emails and having meetings with people. And finally, in 2015, then Prime Minister Malcolm uh, Turnbull dedicated um, the quite beautiful Indian Ocean Tsunami Memorial in um, Kings Park in Canberra on the shores of Lake Billy Griffin. And um, he, in his uh, dedication speech, Turnbull actually paid tribute to Joe to say Joe was one of the main people behind why this um, memorial was built. And it's actually quite a beautiful um, memorial. It's very simple, but it's really quite lovely. It's wave-shaped. And it has 26 pillars as part of the wave. And each one of those pillars represents the 26 Australians who died. Which brings us to where Joe is spending Christmas this year. So he'll be down He'll be down there this year for the anniversary. Yeah, it's the 15th anniversary this year, as we said. And uh, I said to him, what are you doing for Christmas? He said, oh, I'm going to Canberra. I'm going to Canberra and I'm, I'm laying flowers at that memorial and I'm going to be laying flowers where Paul's name is listed. And he said the most important thing about having a memorial like that is it keeps those people's uh, memories alive and it keeps what everyone survived alive. That's quite powerful and I think the next time I'm in Canberra I'm going to make sure that um, I look at that memorial in in a very different way. One of the most inspiring things about Joe is that I said to him, how do you overcome this kind of an experience? And this philosophy is really so astounding. He said, as as awful as it was losing their their beautiful son, he said um, they had survived. And it was important that 
he and Ivana continued to live and they also have a, a daughter. And he said it, it's very easy to fall into a state when grief really overtakes you. But he, he said you need to find something within yourself where you continue to live and you learn to live with it because they survive, so they have to keep living. They have to make sure that an active life that, where they contribute to society and they, they stay involved and they, they still continue every day is a really important part of being a survivor. And as awful as the grief is, he says, you, you have to find a way to continue going in, in your life. And they've done very well. Um, they, were, they were involved in, um, in the building and real estate industry before all this happened. And when they got back, they changed their life. And they now have a uh, shoe import business in, um, in Melbourne, in the suburb of Ivanhoe. And Joe was saying that shoe business, and it, it looks like it's actually an absolutely beautiful shop, uh, has been a really important part of their recovery because it gave them something to focus on and it gave them something that is beautiful to work with. And he said, and you have to find the beauty in life to continue going. Thanks for listening to this season of Investigates. We'll be back next year with more incredible and unbelievable stories. Until then, listen to some of our top episodes of the year, like Australia's Most Haunted House or the case of Matthew Levison. I'm Stephen Downey and I'll see you next year. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.